Good evening, good morning, good day, good night. We are on at the... Yeah, that's right. This was for my birthday. Happy birthday. We have really cool people today here in the studio. Cool is the operative word. Philippe, a good friend of mine, many, many years. John. We'll see how we title him. <laughs> and then we have Peter. Now, the cool thing about this situation is that I'm sitting right across from John, who is dressed the same way I grew up the first 16 years of my life. Uh, what do you call yourself? Oh, Amish, from an Amish community. Amish, from an Amish community. I grew up in a super orthodox religious community in Israel and kind of feel like he's my brother and I feel more a kinship to him just because of the way he's dressed and carries himself in my heart than to uh, most people on the street so that's, a, that's an interesting topic of growing up in communities maybe even Closed communities, or are they more? I don't know. What would you describe? Not completely closed, but definitely uh, a distinct separation from the rest of the world. So yes, closed to a certain degree. There's uh, there's very little cultural interaction between the youth and the children in Amish community and children in an English community, for example. They only interact with other Amish people for the most part. Yeah. So very similar. Mm-hmm. We were told to not interact with other people. It was not a good thing. Uh, and the same. Yep. So what the heck are we doing on 72nd Street in the <laughs> Upper West Side? That's the question. Why are we both here? What, you know, what brings what yeah, what brings you here into this studio from your community? Well, I've uh traveled a very interesting path on life's journey. Um I grew up on a farm in Northeast Ohio, fruit and vegetable farm. Amish community, uh, fourth largest Amish community in the world, about which is not that large, about 2,500 families, and uh, always had a very, felt a very close connection to life and living processes through the process of trying to grow food for people, and learned a lot about how our agricultural practices were impacting land and soil, and also how the development and the growth of that food impacted us as people at the same time. And now you find you're finding yourself in this mixed world. I mean, you you're crossing boundaries in some degree, right? I like to think of it as being a bridge between the worlds. Okay, indeed. Being, okay. Yeah. So, similarly to the job or uh, role I've been taking on, which in some ways it's the same as my upbringing, just without some of the structures. Meaning, to my close friends who they ask me what I do for a living, at least the ones I grew up with, I say, well, I'm basically a rabbi without the religion. <laughs> and, or, in other ways, a spiritual guide or teacher of sorts. Now, 
it took I wasn't always this way uh, when I left the community at 16 years old I went to look for success and peace every other which way at least the ones that was presented as the the one to go for uh, the right education the getting involved with the right people the right people I'm using quotes and just going towards success in a very whatever the magazines and TV shows were showing me and I went for it pretty just like everyone else got involved in technology and in real estate and whatever else was cool and only in the past five years have I been coming back to my roots where it's about community and self-sustaining communities really and I serve as well as a bridge between two worlds, which is one is the old way, the ancient way of believing that we are in competition with one another and we are trying to get to the top. And the new, the new ancient way of, hey, we're here together, we may as well learn to to just be in harmony and in line again with nature. There are so many similarities. Uh, I was really impressed and amazed as I learned more about plant development and plant growth and how things really functioned in a natural ecology, in a natural system. Between, uh, I was amazed at the similarities between growth and development in agriculture and our own sp- spiritual development as well. So, uh, for example... During plant growth, we have a, as a plant grows, we have a 24-hour photosynthetic cycle. And every 24 hours, while the sun is shining very brightly, that plant needs to be collecting light, and it captures and stores that light, converts it into sugars, which are an energy source. And then it, those sugars get transferred to the growing tips and the leaves of the plant. The really interesting part is that 80% of plant development and plant growth happens at the darkest time of the night, from 3 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning. So think about that from a spiritual perspective. We, too, are supposed to collect light while the sun is shining during the brightest part of parts of our lives so that we have the energy to develop during trials and tribulations from a spiritual perspective. So that's, that's just one example. There, there are many, many examples of of development processes in nature that correlate to our own development pro- processes in some very startling ways. Well, I love that. I had no idea what we were going to talk about tonight, but I really felt it would be a great opportunity for me, for us, to literally learn from you. Uh, I know that Philippe doesn't give his time to everyone, and I just he talks good about you, but I never had a chance to actually learn from you so this is a, a good a, a good correlation is that why he looks so guilty <laughs> <laughs> he's like what did i agree to <laughs> <laughs> we met so let's talk about we, I, I met philippe at a <coughs> five you know, years ago in los angeles in a commute in, in a community building enterprise we shall say and we're not we're not working for them anymore Yet, we keep finding ourselves at different projects and companies and opportunities to ultimately 
build communities and improve human life. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, Aurea, I want to take this opportunity to wish you a happy birthday. Um, you said something very funny, actually, before we started the show, was that yesterday was, you thought your birthday for most of your life was yesterday. And today. then, or today, yeah. right? But you found out that it was yesterday and that you decided to celebrate uh, yesterday and then again today for old time's sake, right? So yes. you, <laughs> good trick. So yeah, it was a good trick. Um, so happy birthday. And you have blessed um, many people with your incredible vision and your wisdom and your, um, your wonderful uh, heart and your brain. Uh, so it's been an honor to be your friend and your student, you know, on this journey. So I'm I'm very proud and very honored to be sitting in this chair, you know, across from you today. But um, to answer your question, you know, John and I work very closely together, and um, we, you know, like like you and I, Oria, have a connection at some level. Um, today, I think I told John that it was a genetic connection at some DNA splicing that happened, you know, over millennia or whatever that led us together. Um, John would probably say that, that those um, telomeres or whatever are, are actually antennae that are attracted, that are uh, absorbing and receiving spiritual information, and that's why we're together. But what, no matter what it is that brought us together, John and I, and then you and I, Aurea, um, the, there is a community that is built, you know, and... Um, so we are community-oriented people. We want to come together to do big, good, meaningful, beautiful things in the world, to support each other. We're different. We come from our own unique ancestry, our own cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, etc. In fact, you know, there is no reason why John Kempf and I should be sitting next to each other on 72nd Street tonight, nor is there any real good reason that you and I should be together. Um, but we are, and we are brothers, and... We are on this incredible journey together and accomplishing, I think, really interesting things together. So um, community, you know, the communities that you're building that I'm so grateful to be a part of, and the community that, you know, that John and I are building in business and, and beyond, uh, and now the communities that we're going to be building together, I think, you know, it's beautiful and such a great pleasure to be a part of it. Yeah, maybe we can talk about, well, obviously, thank you. I guess we have to take a break soon, but I'm interested in talking a little bit about what have we learned? What makes a community? What What is, like looking forward to the future, what are the few basic things we can learn from nature that you know, in John, that from your upbringing and experience, and you, Philippe, know from all of your trials and, you know, troubles. <laughs> there have been some tribulations in there too if you want yeah. to throw those in yeah you know from ultimately going for the same thing building community helping humanity and yet it, it seems like we we've had a we've had a struggle acknowledging the fact that we are part of life which is greater than us and we sometimes or many times get stuck on ideas and building blocks of what this divinity means or even trying to figure it out is our worst enemy just trying to box it and structure it and yet everything is pointing towards the new 
world uh, harmony, which is being, uh, just letting flow and letting nature support us instead of trying to force it, instead of trying to make something happen without respecting, without having the reverence for the natural world. And in one sense, we're reading about we're running out of water, we're running out of food. And then there's also this whole other sense that people are remembering. People are coming together in ways that we have, like you said, there is no reason for us to be here together. And yet our antennas and our souls and our essences are bringing us together to build and co-create platforms, communities, and just conversations that engage a world that is beyond the current shortages of water or food. There there is not just hope, but there is real magic happening. So maybe when we come back in a few minutes, we'll go into that. In the moon of the budding trees I was gifted new eyes to see All of the shift and shape and ways you can be Wake the dreams into realities Wake the dreams into realities Sunset diamonds trickle down our cheeks So, we all know that at some point we figured out that the world is not what, flat, right? There was a big shift. We realized the world is not flat. and I, I feel like that there is something very similar happening. Because I'm sure there were some people that knew that the world wasn't flat. There was always some being that just could close their eyes and could see everything. Could see that we are a reflection of our imagination. And I really believe that we are going through a very, very similar time where we are realizing that just the same way that the world is not flat, that we are dancing in a very participatory dance as life itself. We know deep inside the correlation between our imagination, our intention, and manifestation or the unfolding of life itself. We try to understand it or formulate it but we can't. We can, however, look at nature and see some patterns uh, between the process of expansion and growth and the journey from intention to manifestation. And I'd love to hear some from you, John, about that. Well, before the break, you mentioned a thought about uh, how, how do we rebuild communities and, and how can we look at building communities from uh, the examples that nature has left us. And, of course, coming from my uh, agricultural background, one of the things that I've often asked the question of myself and have contemplated is, what is it that people bring to the landscape? Because plants can certainly grow without our assistance. Um, Animals can propagate and take care of themselves without our assistance, and yet when man is present, there is a whole additional level of productivity and health and performance that happens. And what I came to realize is that, uh, and there may be more things, but I think one of the foundational elements that we bring to the landscape is empathy. 
the ability to empathize with other organisms and help them thrive and help create an environment that is conducive for them. That is something that we do very well in agriculture and in farming. Well, how well we do it in commercial production agriculture is to be debated. But in short, uh, I would like to ask the question is why have we not considered that more carefully in our human relationships and how we build communities? Because that is something that um, I don't think has gotten the attention that it should have. So what is the question? How do we develop communities? Or um, what is the question? Empathy. Why haven't we been taking empathy into Why don't we take empathy into consideration in developing communities? And why can't we see that that is our superpower? That yes. is the human that is the, human, that is the human function, as I see it. I, I was on the way to the train here. I mean, I was on the way. I was on the way on the train. And I've been asking myself this question recently. What part of me hasn't changed ever? Which parts to me can I now recognize in my 35 years of being alive, of being the same? Whether they are my daydreams, uh, even some of my hurt and jealousy, but there's an essence to me that hasn't changed. And right when I was thinking about that again, the train jolted and the person next to me was flying and I reached to grab them and I just held them. And I realized that they may be, afterwards I realized that it's not very, uh, it could be even threatening and, mm-hmm. and on the New York City subway, but just this, this, uh, this instinct, this automatic reach and I just grabbed that person's arm like that's the part of me that hasn't changed that's the this willingness this instinctual willingness to support to smile to empathize to just be there for someone and i it's so good that you asked that because as i was doing it and i was thinking about it i realized that in the communities or the circles that i'm around i am I'm consi- like it's a high trait. Like people tell me how nice I am. Like I sit in rooms and people tell me, "Oh, you, you know, you, you, there's a benevolence to my being," which I am thinking like that's that's that's, oh, that's natural. I don't really understand what the big deal is. I'll take it. I'll serve, in, in my role as a teacher and a guide, and I'll talk about it. But it's not. It seems to be the most natural place in me. So, I love that. You're right. That that is the question. Why is this an anomaly, or why is it even looked up to? Why, because I am nice and kind and compassionate, or can be. That isn't. That's just. That's that's who what we do. It's who we are. We have we have the unique capacity to put ourselves or imagine ourselves in another's environment or in another's situation, and consider what it would be like if we were walking a mile in their shoes, so to speak. And that is a uniquely human capacity. So the question is, in a religion or some structures, they talk about we forgot. In some religion, that's the original sin. And there's all these stories about we ate the wrong fruit. We did something. What do you think? How did you grow up? What did they tell you? And what do you believe now, just looking at humanity? <laughs> Two very different questions. <laughs> I know. Um, well, of course, I grew up in a, um, in a very um, 
Orthodox Judeo-Christian uh, theology worldview, if you will. Um, what do I believe now? I, I guess I can say to summarize it into its essence, um, I believe that uh, there is a universal supreme being, a God, and that uh, and this, of course, comes from the, I'm using the Christian theology framework that I'm familiar with, although I've certainly studied many other religions as well, um, that if from the Christian perspective, if we truly believe that we are the sons and daughters of God, then that means that we are co-creators here on earth. And as co-creators here on earth, then that raises the question is, okay, how do we co-create? How do we co-create our reality? Because we are really, we are creating our reality every day. And in alignment with the thoughts on empathy, what I believe that what we intend is what we create and what we intend is what we become. And so when you stop to really think about that for a moment, that, that has pretty extensive ramifications. And, and I have, I've experienced a lot of different things that have brought me to this conclusion. So I'll share one story as an example. Um, have I have a good friend who I've uh, visited many times. Uh, she has an amazing garden, about two acres garden of wildflowers and berries and shrubs and bushes and all kinds of amazing fruit. And she was describing for me how several weeks prior to my visit, her mother had come to visit. And, and I should also mention that in her entire garden, uh, there are she uses no insecticides. It's completely organic. And she has the healthiest plants that I have ever seen. No insects, no bugs, absolutely no diseases. There is nothing that you could find imperfect in this entire place. It is a miniature Eden on earth. It's really amazing. So her mother, and, and this, it is really a reflection and an extension of her personality because that is who she is as well. She believes that this is what she is going to create and so that is what comes forth. So her mother came to visit and... Um, her mother has a very different perspective on life that this is going to go wrong and that's what going to this something else is going to go wrong. So uh, they were preparing dinner and her mother volunteered to go out to the garden to cut a head of cauliflower. And on the way out the door, uh, she made the comment that it's probably going to have a lot of worms in it anyhow. They found over a dozen worms in this head of cauliflower. Hmm. And the next day, after her mother had left, my friend went out to the garden and diligently looked at every single cauliflower plant that was left, and she was unsuccessful in finding a single worm. So, and, you have, and you've been seeing these these sort of things always, or is it a more of a recent place where you're recognizing it? Um, I well, I think everyone sees it, but they don't recognize it. So, right. for example, uh, again, connecting back to agriculture and growing plants there's a lot of discussion about people who have a green thumb and people who have a brown thumb. And from my perspective, the only difference between those two is people with a quoted green thumb have, they have an empathy for those plants. They are empathizing with those plants. They are on some level communicating with them and building an image in their minds of what those plants can become in the future. And so when we talk about imagination, I believe that imagination is actually an extremely powerful force that our 
imaginings, our imaginations can then extend to become our intentions as well, which can then extend to become reality. And we're gonna go. We're gonna come back to that and keep talking about it more and more, because that is the core of, I believe, that new shift where we realize the world is not flat; it's round. Where we come to recognize that our imagination is our godly force. It is the it is the screen in which we co-create our life. It's the object it's the experience of creation it's how we 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 everything got here there is directly connected to an intention to an imagination everything so your experience with imagination has had to have some support i mean w- when you were growing up were you given a lot of room and space to continue cultivating imagination, or is it more of a recent thing? I would say it's more of a recent thing. Um, however, there was this entire experiential process, even though uh, imagination wasn't necessarily endorsed or discouraged uh, in the culture that I was a part of. It was simply something that was not a part of daily conversation, um, or any conversation for that matter. However... Being growing up on a farm, being closely connected to nature and to natural processes uh, and living systems, there was still the ex- very experiential piece of being able to visually see the differences between the subtle differences between healthy and unhealthy plants, um, and being able to see the subtle differences in animals that were performing very well. So, um, when if you have a dairy farmer, for example, he he may have a dairy barn with cows tied in stalls, hundreds of cows. And yet he can walk out in the morning behind between these stalls of cows and see hundreds of them and be able to point to one cow and say, that cow is not feeling well. And there is absolutely no visual indication that you could point to. It's a purely an instinctual, intuitive sense that something is not right. And all farmers have that empathic skill uh, they have to have, or they will not be successful in their trade. I think, the, uh, I think there is a dance, like a subtle dance between empathy and imagination. I see them as two sides of the same coin. Oh, good. We'll come back to that. And we don't know where to begin. Don't know how to fit in. Caught in between the lines. Fighting this world from inside. Can't go back. We're on a one-way track. It's been a so we're having a very exciting conversation about imagination, intention, empathy, how when it beeps, it beeps, how we are coming to recognize our power, our gift, our uniqueness as a human being, and our empathy, and then this direct dance of imagination and the creation of our own reality. Now, this sounds so airy-fairy and new-agey, and yet I believe, I know for a fact, more than I believe, that that switch, the shift from the earth is flat to round, 
situation that we are undergoing right now to recognize our divinity and our power in our imagination and empathy. But what talk about context, right? We'd like to give some context. So John, as you represent you, Philippe told me he's the plant whisperer he gave me. But give us some context a little bit about the company that you are working with together. Some of the stuff that you guys are doing that would show the the listeners whenever they are that what we are talking about here is not just for a, a blog post somewhere this is a philosophy and a methodology that you guys are using in your company and your company feeds a lot of people and it creates a lot of value would you tell us a little bit about your company and how you came to know John and more, because I know you for such a long time, Philippe, you're not the new agey type at all. Secretly, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> outwardly, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of validation for you to be here. Well, how, what, what has it been like? What are you guys doing together? Well, John um, can explain what the company, the purpose of the company is and what we do much better than I. But what I can say is this, is that I was on a journey um, to try to contribute to the conversation of global change in my way, in my lifetime. And I asked the question, what is the one thing that I could do that would have the greatest impact? And I felt that with, you know, my few skills and with my resources and my network, the greatest contribution that I could make would be to, um, f to identify uh, organizations, institutions, individuals um, who could Im improve food security in the world. This was my starting point. Um, the too many people in the world, um, not enough arable land, poor farm practices, etc. And so if you do the math, there's just not enough food to feed the growing population of the world. And I wanted to, having come from an international development background, I wanted to participate in that conversation in a serious way. And, you know, through the journey of um, learning about uh, the realities of agriculture, um, all of the the needs of the world, and the, the, the challenges of um, uh, the entire supply chain of farming, et cetera, and, and food business. Um, I discovered a young Amish genius uh, from Middlefield, Ohio, named John Kempf, uh, and flew out to meet him. And I'll never forget the first day we met. Was actually we went to we, we ended up in a state park somewhere, and um, you know heard John talking about um, the natural resistance that uh, plant life can have to pest and disease challenges if we were to just um, take care of the plants and to provide them with the nutrition and the empathy that they need in order to naturally resist these kind of exogenous external <coughs> challenges. Um, much in the same way that a, a human being um, can, by improving his or her nutrition, 
and their physiology, they can naturally resist pathogens, right? There are people, you know, my wife, who's the most amazing and beautiful and incredible human being in the world, and I both have two different reactions to a mosquito. Um, I get, you know, swarmed by them, and they they don't seem to bite her. Um, it's the same mosquito, just two different individuals. What's the difference between the two of us? It's probably some chemical difference, right? And it turns out that I don't produce a lot of a specific hormone that the mosquitoes are attracted to, and so uh, therefore they bite me and they don't bite her. And um, and if you take that simple idea and you apply it to the plant world and you realize that you can have the disease in the presence of two different plants, one that is balanced, you know, um, chemically, and, I, and by, chemi- by chemical I don't mean pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and all of the dangerous toxins that we're putting into our soils and feeding our children. What I mean is the chemicals, the natural, you know, beautiful, balanced chemicals that are circulating through the physiology and the cells of a plant. Yeah, chemicals have a bad rep. They have a bad rep. We are all chemicals. Yeah, right. So those, that balance of all of those good things, those nutrients and all of the interrelated um, energies and, and, uh, processes and procedures that when th- when they're in balance that pa- that plant becomes naturally resistant to pests and disease and therefore doesn't require the chemical to defend or to destroy the evil weed would or you, the, the, would the bug. Would you say that John's basis for his magic for his genius is that it's obviously experiential. And would you agree that it's also there's a spiritual component to his being? Yeah, I think that by spiritual, you know, we may have different idea of what that is. But my idea of how John is spiritual is that I think that um, he has implicit experience around plant life and a rare and unique sensitivity and perception that may not even be conscious that allows him when he's in the presence of a plant or a field or even a human being um, to be able to, to detect where there are imbalances. And those imbalances are obvious to him. Well, they may not be obvious to us. In fact, John was telling me a funny story today about uh, trying to explain the Amish way, right? And he was talking about a, um, a I think we were talking about cattle or something, but he, he said, imagine in your mind a whole line of cattle with their butts facing you, right? And you walk by them. I did not use those words. <laughs> okay, well, I'm embellishing for radio. Um, spiritual radio. Spir- yeah, spiritual radio. And so the butts are facing you, and the Amish guy can walk down, and he can look from the back, and he can say, that, that one doesn't look too good, you know, where the rest of us wouldn't even notice right. that there was a problem. Because there's just the the multi-generational uh, implicit memories and experiences and knowledge that, that happens when you're around it and you can detect these things subtly. Now, you combine that with this extra degree of sensitivity and this extra degree of empathy and care and sensitivity, which John has, um, and now you're able to actually have a communication with the plant, I believe. I don't think that that comes from some external cosmic intervention. I think that it is a biological, physiological um, you know, core, uh, connection of all of these different synapses working together, and that what makes John uniquely John. And therefore, it's important that what, what we somehow try to find a way to take what John has 
and to put it into an algorithm somehow and build an app and make billions of dollars on it. But that's a whole separate conversation. But the real purpose of it would be to bring that sensitivity and that rare, unique skill and ability and automate it so that people can benefit from that around the world. And that's what my role is in this, is really to help John to articulate, to externalize, to codify, to systematize that algorithm um, to the best of his ability over time and so that it lives outside of him and can exist without him. So it's bridging his natural uh, nature, his, his, his sense of innocence and remembrance that he has with life and Mother Earth. And what I think what I call spiritual, we all call spiritual, at least in this room, is not a, anything external, but it's an in, the internal source that you know, beats our heart. And you're obviously not scared of it. I mean, you, you're seeing it work, right? The, the, company, the, the company that you guys are working together is successful in, in measurements that you like, correct? It's growing. It's working. I think that in the same way that Steve Jobs was able to create something that people felt really good about looking at and, exp- and using, and it was a ver- it's an intangible, it's not something that you can you know, reduced to a, to a simple formula or whatever. I think that is the same thing, that, that, that is what John has in agriculture. And that is an incredibly awesome blessing and an incredibly amazing responsibility. Uh, and I think that that requires that we invest in it and because it can literally transform the quality and the quantity of the food that we eat around the world, which would not only improve the environment, it would improve and affect public health, and um, I think that it would improve economies around the world. And we can talk about that in a, in when we get back. They're bridging the two, how using structures and formulas of business and economics that we know work, that we can scale up, but doing it in accordance or at least in harmony with John's upbringing. So I, I would like to talk about that when we come back. So tap me out and tap me into you Heal my brain and my body too Balance my chemistry, hydrate these cells Cause the body talks and meditation helps The body talks and meditation helps All right, I have uh, I have several follow-up thoughts to what you were sharing, Philip. Uh, the first is, um, well, perhaps I'll begin with a story. An example, a very good friend of mine is a consultant in Canada, and in his local area, he is considered to be one of the best consultants. All the fruit and vegetable growers work, want to work with him. He works with growers that are usually growing a 1,000-plus acres of uh, salad greens and lettuces and so forth, and everyone wants to work with him. And so every year he has the opportunity to select the growers that he wants to work with. And what is really intriguing is that in his consulting work, he does not teach people about nutrition. He does not teach them how to give their plants the right care, the right cultural management. He teaches them and he teaches all of their employees how to communicate with plants, how to have empathy with plants. 
And what the farmers are experiencing is that when the employees really care about the plants and when they begin to really communicate and care for the crops that they're growing in a different way and, ha- and, and, and carry different intentions toward those crops and the crop performance completely totally changes. So an example of that happened several years ago. Uh, one farmer had several fields that were several miles apart, had a major hailstorm that went through and pretty much decimated the lettuce crop. So several hours after the hailstorm, the farmer and his uh, coach were out in the field. And so my friend asked the farmer on the lettuce that he was growing, said, when you think of this lettuce, when you think of this crop, what does this crop mean to you? What is it to you? And the farmer's response is, well, to me, it's a source of income to be able to pay my employees and the ultimate result that I imagine when I'm looking at this crop is pallets of lettuce in boxes stacked up on pallets in a warehouse. And that is really the end result that I'm seeking to achieve. So they went to the next field several miles away. And then the coach asked him, he said, okay, so when you are considering, when you're looking at this field, I want you to, instead of thinking about the lettuce as being a product in a warehouse, think of a young family with several young children sitting down to eat dinner, and they have this lettuce on their plate. And I want you to think of this lettuce that you, uh, and, and communicate to these plants that you want them to grow healthy and to be well, to be able to provide food for young children and for other people, and that you're really growing these plants for food. So... Several weeks later, they approached the uh, harvest season, the first field in which he envisioned this field as a commodity. They ended up not even harvesting the crop because there was such a small proportion of the harvest that it wasn't even worth going through the field to pick what small amount was there. And on the other field where they envisioned it being food for people, they had an 80% harvest after the hail damage. So... The reality is we tend to, in in agriculture and in many um, professions, we tend to think of life and living processes in terms of chemistry and biochemistry, but the reality is that all living processes are electrical. They're fundamentally electrical. When we talk about minerals, all minerals are crystals. And crystals, as many people may know from recalling a crystal radio set, are fundamentally antennas. They transmit and they receive They transmit and receive energy, and they transmit and they receive information. This is at the foundation of how many living processes work, enzymes and so forth. And so when we talk about uh, human-to-human communication, human-to-plant communication and so forth, I believe there's a great deal that happens subconsciously, as in with the mosquito example that you provided. Uh, There's communication that goes on that uh, we haven't even begun to quantify yet in many different ways from a scientific perspective. So you're saying that he's attracting mosquitoes because of the way he's thinking and feeling and being? It's in his essence? Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that's necessarily the case, but it's possible that that could be the case. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I get it. I, I know that it, it's this place where we step back and we just have this non-understanding understanding that we are an intention, that something intended all of this here. 
and we don't have to be scared of thinking that we know what that something is or somebody's going to shove that something down our throat I, I don't I only know you from one organization Philippe but I know you've worked with many people who you saw firsthand damage of what it looks like when you shove the wrong idea or it looks like the right idea down people's throat and you probably are just sensitive to anything that isn't quantifiable or just to the anything that can be used you know maliciously you, you have an aversion to it so the aversion to the idea that we can't create our reality with our thoughts i mean how are, how are you how are you running i mean you have a successful business with john correct like the numbers make sense how, what do you guys uh, do you, you manage forms you feed people what's what's happening in there all right so <clears throat> there's a lot in there and i want right. to talk about a few of those things if i Good. have time you do. um the first point i want to make is that i do believe in intention and i do believe that intention affects and changes reality and reality is nothing more than our perception of the data that is being presented to us on a day-to-day moment-to-moment basis so if i um, if my intention is to cure and to heal and to care for my patient, if I'm a doctor, then I believe that I will find uh, ways um, that I may not normally discover or, or see or identify or think about um, or learn about that you know could have that effect on that patient. Um, and so I can affect the reality that exists for myself and for that patient just by being open and, and by changing my intention. Um, so I do believe that intention can, can have that. And, um, I, and I, another thing I want to say is also about John as plant whisperer. Um, I think everyone has a little bit of a whisperer in them. Um, everyone has a unique sensitivity. Some people are able to discern melodies and able to produce beautiful masterpieces, you know, and music. Others, um, have, an incredible gift of um, oratory and can stand in front of large crowds and move people because they are able to sen- to they're sensitive to the needs of their audience and and on and on um, you know you Oria have this wonderful sensitivity for the work that you do which is why so many people myself included you know want to learn and study from you because you're able to discern things that most of us can't see or understand. So I think that the part of the journey of life is to discover what our whisperer is and to invest in it and to believe in it. Um, what do we do as a company? We, you know, we make money, um, but what's more important is we have impact because we help farmers grow the highest quality, highest yielding food without the need for commercial or for chemical pesticides and fertilizers, et cetera. Um, and we produce uh, food uh, through our, uh, on our own and through our farmers who are our customers that is medicinal in quality and that have, can literally affect um, the health of the people that can, who consume it. There's one thought that I would like to add here. I know we're running up against the clock, um, but it's very important for us to remember that there are five realities, and Philip alluded to this, and I think uh, and this, is, this is the framework that I've come up with to describe it. There are really five realities. The first foundational reality is truth, the ultimate reality, everything that is and exists. The second is 
our personal experience of a very small portion of that total overall reality. And then third is our perception of the reality that we get to experience. Fourth is the stories that we make up about our perception of the reality that we experience. And fifth is the emotions we feel when we believe the stories we make up about our perceptions of the reality we experience. And the fifth, talk to me about the fifth in the last minute we have. It sounds like that. Tell me about that. So I think the, the critical p- part is, is the, really the last three are those that we influence. The first is our perception. And I think it can be a valuable exercise to go back and ask ourselves the question, okay, I perceived this to be happening, but is this really what happened? Are my, are my perceptions accurate? And then, if possible, to avoid creating a story, particularly an artificial story, because the emotions are really a result of the story. So we get the opportunity to rewrite the story in our imaginations and with our intentions. And that's why we are somehow, three of us are in this room, because there is a place within us that knows it to be true, and we are, we are literally building companies, projects, communities with that core truth. We are. I mean, before even, I mean, I, the, the summary for this show was something along the line of uh, reality making and storytelling, and I had no idea, really, that that's what we're going to talk about. But there's a part of me that knew that ultimately... This is the discussion to have. This is the, these are the conversations that later generations would be able to listen to because this is the first time in the history that we don't have to go back, that they won't have to go back and just guess what we said. Everything is recorded. Everything is in, in there forever in these clouds of data. And they're going to go back and realize that we did have our eureka moments. We've discovered we have we remembered that this is us we are dancing and co-creating this moment by moment so we'll be back in a few minutes and we'll continue to talk about that I believe in the good things coming, 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 coming I believe in the good things coming, 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 coming Out of darkness, light are pumping, 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 pumping Into white light, all things running, 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 running Let's talk about success. Everybody's after success, right? There's, it's, it, it's within us. We want to be successful. We want to make it. And we have different examples in this room of the journey to success. And perhaps we'll probably find the same commonality of what success is. You had some things to say in the break. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've had the great fortune to, for many years, work with some of the most successful people in the world and get to know them intimately. Um, Famous A-list celebrities, billionaires, um, you name it. And... um, and now John, you know, who is a celebrity in his world, in the in the world of agriculture, um, there's a common, from my perspective, there is a um, a common thing that they do uh, that 
um, that speaks directly to what we were talking about before, this idea of empathy. Um, when you, when, what they all seem to do is let go of the philosophy of life, right? Um, that's usually left for the spectators. You could tell if someone who, you know, someone who is really in the game and winning, right? Whatever, however they define success and everyone else, just by this subtle subtlety. The philosophers will talk about how the, you know, the, the process of success or the process of enlightenment or the process of whatever they're doing, where the, the, the most successful ones just let that go and let themselves go and immerse themselves into what they're doing and actually do real work. And the real work is about letting go of what um, there is a, an inhibition and there is a distance between you and the customer or you and the, the, the audience or you and the plant. And when you can let, let go of that distance that normally separates the two and immerse yourself into, and, and that's empathy or whatever you want to call it, um, and try to bring life to it with all of your energy and all of your passion and all of your resources and you bring it to life, then you create miracles, I think. And those miracles are, you know, what the the what uh, some people would call would call success or whatever you know outcomes and what sounds to me like uh, what you're talking about letting go and immersing yourself with passion is for me i've experienced that i'm experiencing it is letting go and allowing life itself to flow through me allowing life's passion to express itself through me and for me i found I'm finding success is to be very elegant and gentle. I was thinking today how my growth in my business, the way I am supporting myself and whoever I'm working with, it's been very organic, meaning I don't have more than I'm comfortable with as far as growth. It's solid. It's steady. It's growing. It is seasonal. Summer was, you know, spring already is much busier than winter and fall was different than summer. And even though my business may seem like it's all about people, it really is about life itself. And once I have allowed myself to flow, to kind of settle into the flow of life, then that is success for me. I'm experiencing it as, again, it's organic and natural and letting go to all of the self-help books and personal development material, while a lot of it can be true, this is the first time in my life where I, it's almost like I really don't care about what other people have to say. I care, but I know it's not real because the few experiences that I have right now of success are so different than everything that I was taught or thought that I trust this sense of, I, I trust, I trust life. You find that the truth is within you. Right. And it's exciting to me to be with both of you and know that your entire company uh, that is working on feeding the planet in a sustainable way and being successful at it, meaning you're not, you're futuristic, you're working, it works, the formula works. And at the core of it, It's got reverence for life, right? Yeah, and I've observed that it doesn't just happen organically with the ones who can really create big change. 
John, if you compare him to all of the other agronomists that I've met or all the other experts in the field, including, you know, we just met probably one of the most influential ag people in the, in the, in the world the other day, um, it's about intensity. Um, while John is patient, you know, uh, he is the most intense person I know at trying to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. But in his imagination, he's, he's comfortable with that. Absolutely. But the, the intensity, the, the distance between what he en- envisions for the field, for the plant, for the company, uh, there's, a sh- there's, there's, no, there's not a lot of distance between his, the amount of energy that he exerts to try to bring life to whatever it is that's in front of him. And to me, that is the difference between someone who is, and I hate to use you know, these, these, these labels, but these high performers, um, the ones who can really actualize things, uh, an actor who can bring that level of intensity to his or her performance, reaching in from a new place, letting go, and the level and degree of intensity definitely translates into a, a different response from, from the audience. John, well, talk to me about the intensity. Well, uh, it's not something that I've thought a lot about, but um, in my own personal, (laughs) in my own personal, when I think about what he said, it is very true. Um, There is, to me, that there is such a broad distance, a significant distance between where we need to be and where we are today, and that there is that strong sense of mission and vision that drives that, and uh, yes, there is a lot of intensity there. uh, Which you consider passion. Passion, yes. And... That intensity, I think in order for that intensity to flow through, you first have to stop being the barrier. Many times we limit, not many times, all the time, we limit ourselves. There are not external things limiting us. If it is true that we create our own reality, then there are no limits other than those that we place upon ourselves. So you're, do you consider, it's it's a funny question, do you consider yourself successful when you go to sleep? Uh, I'm not satisfied with where I am, but I consider myself successful. Yes. Okay. And w- how do you me- how do you how do you measure it? Or wh- wh- why why do you consider yourself successful? So, um, there's two answers floating around in my head. Um, let me give you the long answer first. <laughs> yeah. So, why do I consider myself successful? Um, I'll give you a very brief background. I grew up on a fruit and vegetable farm in Northeast Ohio, snow belt south of Lake Erie. Growing up, we were very heavy pesticide users. In fact, my father was the pesticide distributor for the local community. So we learned through hard experience in the early 2000s that the intense use of pesticides was not a viable option for the future. They were no longer successful at controlling disease and insect pests. We learned through personal hard experience that they were destroying our land, destroying agriculture, and that by extension, they were destroying ecology and destroying the environment. Through that experience, um, I was able to, in, in, in an effort to turn around the, the crisis that we were in, I learned a lot about uh, soil and plant interactions, soil microbiology, plant physiology. I learned that it is possible for plants to have a functional immune system and be completely resistant to disease and insect pests. And I learned that that... Uh, the information of how to accomplish that has already been well-studied and well-researched. The information is all out there. We have the knowledge, we have the information today about how to produce a truly regenerative agriculture. 
but it is not being implemented. It is stored in the archives of universities all over the world. So what the I went through this experience, personal experience of regenerating our farm, moving completely away from pesticides and developing a system in which we were growing plants that are completely healthy, resistant to disease and insect pests with no pesticide inputs whatsoever. When I came to realize, what I came to realize was that these healthy plants had functional immune systems and they also had the capacity to transfer that immunity to the people who consume that food. So they had the, the capacity to transfer immunity. But in addition, healthy agricultural systems also regenerated ecology. We now had much more diverse insect populations. We had many more uh, birds and songbirds in the local environment. We had a very different plant population growing in the, in the soil. And what I also learned is that these systems have the capacity to restore the environment. We were able to build tremendous amounts of organic matter and build soil very quickly. So what this then translated into, realizing that agriculture really holds the solution for many of the problems that we face in our world today. One more thing that it has the capacity to do, agriculture in many ways is really the driver of economics. When you have a solid agriculture and producing um, food, producing income, uh, agriculture is the only industry that you can put in one seed and get 100 in return or more. So there is, I saw that agriculture was really, and, and changing agriculture was really the foundational answer to many of the challenges facing the, world's, uh, facing the world today. And I realized that what I had experienced on that farm needed to be replicated on the world's farm all over the world and agriculture around the world. So that is really the, the mission that I am really passionate about and the vision that I have is to develop regenerative agricultural models so that those regenerative agricultural models become the status quo around the world. In 20 years from now, those become the default system that everyone is familiar with. And we already have all the information. So to get back to the answer of your question. I think we got it. <laughs> Indeed. Ben, just your... You, you being able, we'll get to it after the break, but you being, you being able to be your passion on a daily basis. Yes. And seeing that begin to be fulfilled already on hundreds, no, on thousands of farms across the country. In the moon of the budding trees, I was gifted new eyes to see all of the shifting shape and ways you can be. Wake the dreams into realities Wake the dreams into realities let's, let's go into this discussion of success and imagination and uh, this threesome we have going on here because, you know, so much... I have a question for you, John. You are right now... Uh, your, your work affects... In, it, it's affecting international. It's international, right? You're working. It's it's out of your head, and it's actually in the field, mm -hmm. right? There is hundreds, if not thousands, of farms that are producing better, uh, more harmoniously. I don't know if you know. It's producing. What would you call them? They're making more money. <laughs> well, that's part of it. Uh, yeah. Because farms are, you know, it's interesting because if you think of a farm, it's not just about selling products it's a place where people live um, there's a spirit on a farm you know there's a family usually and 
there it's uh, there's a really interesting connection between farmers and the earth and it's a unique it's like a little you know I don't even know how to describe it's a very unique thing like a little country like a little country huh. yeah so you're seeing a lot of success in that correct I believe so I mean the f- economics have improved for the farmers the health has improved for the farmers they don't have to use dangerous pesticides um, the pride in their work imagine producing you know you don't become a farmer because you want to get rich You become a farmer because you there's some beauty in nature of producing something watching you know every farmer will tell you that they love to see a beautiful tomato or a beautiful crop grow you know and there's something beautiful about that so imagine being able to produce such high quality nutrient dense food that's almost medicinal in quality and selling that and knowing that someone's going to eat that and that's going to have an effect on right. them and that their soil that they you know improve is going to have an impact on the so, on so the this earth. is out of the lab and out of the theories and philosophies and it's actually working yeah and it's a pretty young company right how long have you guys been working together uh we've been working together for four years i founded the company in 2006 so it's eight years old now okay and it's global it's successful and it's just the beginning my question to you john is Is it strange to you where you are right now, or is it vaguely familiar? Like when you were growing up, did you know that this was going to unfold? Um, how do you define no? <laughs> you could just tell me yes There was always kind of a subconscious sense that something like this could come to be, absolutely. Okay. So you are answering or allowing... That intensity is also a sense of allowing that's right and how much of your magic when it comes to retraining teaching allowing uh, well I don't want to answer it all of the methodology and philosophy that you are utilizing in order to improve everything especially when it comes to food how much of how much of it is it allowing versus manipulating like are you bringing it back to some natural essence or Or are you using brand new technology? All of it is everything that we do is allowing natural systems to express themselves to the fullest of their potential that they already have inherently within themselves. And, Always. And that is the correlation I want to tie to anyone that's doing any kind of personal, spiritual, developmental work to realize that it's about that. It's about allowing, how did you say, your natural essence, expression? Yes. The inherent potential that everyone has within them that every plant has within them see to to go back to one of the points that uh, Philip made several years ago I teach a lot of seminars all over the country and several years ago I asked all the farmers in the audiences the seminars that I uh, spoke at I asked them the question what is it that attracts you to farming what attracted because farming is not an easy profession it's uh, it's hard work there's very long hours uh, often not the best paid job as well but And so almost universally, what really attracts people to agriculture and to farming is their desire to have a connection to life and living processes. They want to be associated with the land. Farmers find tremendous joy in watching the bounce and the spring of a newborn animal. They enjoy watching seeds germinate in the spring. They enjoy listening to songbirds migrating back from the south. These are all examples of things that they find interesting. gives them a close connection to life and living processes. Unfortunately, over the last seven decades or more, we have adopted a model of, an, of agriculture that is directly antagonistic to these core values. 
We have adopted a model of agriculture that is based on a warfare mentality of search and destroy. Identify a specific pest, identify a specific pathogen, and figure out how you can kill it. Isn't that what we do and also in our... In medicine uh, as well. Yeah, in medicine, and it's just yes. in human behavior. Yes. Like, let's find a problem, let's fix it. And what I want to remind and encourage anyone that's on the path of just waking up, really, is to take comfort in what you're saying mm-hmm. and to realize that they do not need to work that hard. They can be intensely passionate about allowing. That does take work. Mm-hmm. It takes... I, I sent a new... I sent a link to a new website today to my community. And somebody wrote to me, said, nice job. And I wrote back, I said, that was about 15 minutes of work, but 30 years of preparation. 30 years of intense, intensely shaping my own cosmology of belonging in my imagination to allow me to mm-hmm. be to do what I'm doing right now. And that inner work, that inner allowing is really the bulk of my personal definition of success. Mm-hmm. And it's so uh, it's so beautiful to know that essentially you know you're a shaman of agriculture. You're really teaching people to let go and allow some of the natural pro- all of the natural processes to take place. I think that's that's a very critical piece is that uh, many agricultural technologies, uh, and as you pointed out in other areas as well, are based on trying to force an outside influence onto the system. And what we are seeking to do instead is to enhance natural processes and enhance natural systems to the much higher state of performance that they would be in a pristine environment. Mm. What, do you, what do you mean by pristine? Uh, an unpolluted or uncontaminated environment. It's like the perfect childhood. (laughs) (laughs) There is an irony, though, or paradox, John, which is that the methodologies that are used today that are so dangerous are easy. They are cheaper, easier to use, and and require less effort. In the very, very short term, you mean? In, well, like in the process of growing, uh, you know, and, and anything really. It's a lot harder to exercise, eat nutritious food, um, and to do and to care for your body is empathically it? than it is to show up and take a, you know, to take a pill or to get a... Is it? Because what we know now, it's much, it's, it would be much harder for me and you right now to go have a cheeseburger at McDonald's. Yeah. It would be very difficult. Well... Difficult. Uh, it would be we would we would have we would carry a lot of guilt around with it, and that that's what makes it harder. I think that the what the food companies know is that if you make it so enticing, it's easier and cheaper. It's easy for someone with limited resources to buy cheap bad food. I mean, and that's like a farmer, right, buying these products that cost next to nothing really, and you, where you can literally just flood the soil with it and then take a vacation and come back. It's a lot harder to allow these natural processes to it's an it's a paradox. Initially. Initially, yeah. Yeah. Initially. Until they it becomes a Until uh, we see that it's working. Until we see it's working, right. And to and to keep it working requires more effort. However, the cost benefit of that effort is far greater when you are 
in harmony with the things that that will you know produce the greatest uh, I don't I don't think that it's the work that's the problem I think that in fact it's the work that actually is the solution that there is a blessing in the work um, that there is a blessing in the effort that there is a blessing in the intensity that we normally run away from when in fact if it's directed in the right place um, rather than saying we're going to work really hard to screw people over and make as much money out of them, to say we're going to work really hard to try to bring our, you know... To stay true. To, to, stay, to, to bring true. everything into harmony, uh, then, then there's a blessing in that. And the ultimate expression of that, uh, of what you were just referring to, Philip, is that, uh, again, thinking in terms of agricultural systems, is that ultimately what we're talking about is a regenerative process. It's not a restorative process. It's a regenerative process in which the total agricultural ecosystem, the soil health is constantly improving, plant health is constantly improving, until you reach a much higher plateau of performance. And when you reach that high plateau of performance, you now have achieved true sustainability. Today there's a lot of a discussion about agricultural sustainability. We can't be sustainable where we are today. We're too far downhill. Our soils are so degraded, our plants are so unhealthy. Conversations about sustainability in agriculture are ludicrous at the level at which we are today. But when we talk about true regeneration, the ultimate regeneration is a self-sustaining ecosystem that does not need continuous external inputs and to be closely managed. And have you been seeing the correlation between the truth of farming and in humans? Meaning, it takes, it takes you know, we've been really destroying ourselves for many, many, many decades and centuries, and yet... It seems that a little bit of the of the right allowing and the right magic does a you know does a lot of work and does a lot of success. Meaning, you are achieving a harmony in places where other people wouldn't even dream of. Correct. That's true. And it's not because you're pouring something special in there. You, as I said, we, we, you're more allowing natural processes to happen. The ratio of it takes a lot more. It seems that a little bit of magic goes a long way. I mean, I call magic is just allowing life to do its thing. goes a long, long, long way. So while it seems a little depressing that we have gone so far off the whatever, the you, you, you feel hopeful, right? I feel a tremendous amount of hope. Uh, absolutely. I, I th see that um, ecology has a tremendous in it capacity to recover almost more than we can fathom and to go back to one of the points that we made earlier what we simply need to do is we need to, to allow um is i find it quite interesting that on the farms that we work with one of the um there's a lot of discussion uh, historically there's been a lot of discussion in biological slash organic sustainable agriculture about uh fixing the deficiencies we have this deficiency that's causing a problem. We have that deficiency that's causing a problem. We need to add more manganese. We need to add more calcium. And as we have looked closer at what is truly happening in agriculture, we find that the deficiencies, in fact, are not the problem. What really is the problem are the excesses of materials that we have put on that are creating other deficiencies. So it goes back again to allowing, allowing the system to express itself and when I'm talking to farmers, one of the things that I frequently say is that the most important thing that we can do is getting out of the way. The reality is the natural system was designed to work. It was intended to work. 
and the only thing that we need to do is give it the materials that it needs to perform the way it wants to perform and get out of the way. And that holds true in many levels. So plants have their own intelligence, and we, you, John, work tirelessly, passionately and intensely to bring back the art, the lost art of allowing, of harmony. And, I, and instead of trying to figure out nature, to just al- figure out how to allow nature to do its magic, and then Philippe scales it and works to ensure that it can go beyond just your family farm into a global reach, correct? Uh, let's talk to the people. What can they learn from what you know from the field to themselves? For example, we talked about empathy. We talked about that our superpower, or the reason why, the, 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 what did you say, the contribution that hum, humans have on this ecosystem is the ability to empathize and support one another. Now, let's talk about imagination and intention because you have somehow, in your essence, John, you have seen this coming into fruition. Maybe not, you didn't sit there and you didn't have a vision board of traveling with Philippe all across the world. But there's something in you that knew that you're on a mission. I, too, have this place in me where I grew up in my own Amish community and this right now, speaking with you, knowing that the reach is global, it's natural. There's something within me that, even though it doesn't make sense, I get it. Again, it's because I'm allowing. I'm giving myself space. I, my, for me, the version of intensity is just maintaining my own relationship with my passion, believing that I do things differently, and there is room for that to be successful. It's not just that there is room for it. Life is continuously conspiring, so to speak, to allow me to do my thing. Very similarly, I'm sure, in farming, life is always trying to what support itself. How, when you, if I have a kid, Philippe has a kid, we are trying to raise a family. I know... Well, what, what advice can you give us as family uh, when it comes to a, you know, tending to our gardens? I should have a lot of advice. I don't have any kids yet. I, I know, but <laughs> as, as tending to a garden, you know, allowing how much... Well, it's not really true, John. You were the oldest <laughs> in a family of how many children? Nine children. So you've, you've uh, probably understand parenting better than Oria or I. Yeah. Well, what... What can we learn from a garden, from nature? I think uh, I would like to perhaps expand that um, to go back to the earlier part of the conversation that we had about imagination and intention creating our own reality. So how, how do we set intentions? How do we create our own reality? And the tool, the mechanism for doing that, I think, is through creating very clear images. 
in our imagination because that is really what imagination is, is building images. So I believe holding an image or clearly structuring image, this is what we want our future to look like. This is what we want this garden to look like. This is what we want these plants to look like. And making that as detailed as we possibly can. Holding a very clear image and even expressing that, writing it down, uh, that imaginative process, and then following that up with clearly holding the intention that this is what I intend to be, this is what I intend to co-create and uh, in love, and it will come to pass. It can be a very powerful tool. Did you always know this, or did you learn this? Are you do, do you do the same thing? Are you? I do the same thing all the time. So this, this all the time. you have written about tonight before. Not just tonight, but your life. You have imagined it. Yes. Did you, and you've always been doing it. Yes. See? And that's, and I, I know that to be true from other people as well. And what do you think about that, Philippe? What do you think about this whole concept? I think it's part of the story. <coughs> I think that envisioning um, a an outcome or a, an experience or an emotion is absolutely part of the journey. Uh, I think most people stop there. Uh, the people that do it, many of the people stop there. Not everyone even gets to that place. But I think that that's just the beginning. And um, the next step is to actually uh, take you know to the to to take actions that will actually on the other side of that that will actually lead you to that outcome or whatever, and that the volume of those actions makes a difference. So uh, the volume of your imagination matters. You don't just um, in my in my view see what you want once. You have to see it always, and it has to become an obsession and has to become more clear every day. I do that. Um, whether I want to or not. Um, but none of the things that I envision come to pass unless I take an action uh, toward that, you know, which is obvious, we know about that. And that the more volume of action that I take with more intensity, um, assuming that it's positioned well and it's focused on the right things, um, makes the makes the vision come real. So right. we're working on it from both sides, and, and that can also contribute to act to, to, to access as well. With John was talking about that a lot of the challenges is not the deficiencies; it's the access. So while I know that maybe I could do more, or maybe there are certain things on my to do list that I could do more often, I also feel very comfortable. And knowing what to do or what not to do based on just a deep knowing or a deep feeling that I have inside me that certain things take time. And nature has its own cycles. I try to imagine that the people listening to this are out of spirituality, one-on-one kindergarten. Of course, it takes action. But it's important to support and encourage folks out there to go back to these places that they really believed that could be true, and yet with so many heartbreaks and wrongdoings of uh, external organizations, we kind of lose that a little bit. And if we lose our ability to imagine, if we lose our ability to just have faith that life supports us no matter what we do, then it doesn't matter how much action, how much volume or intense our passion may be. If it's... uh, we can see it's examples of there's a lot of passionate 
people out there doing a lot of things. People are very busy, and yet it's not really working. So I'm not say, I'm not one of those guys that say, "Hey, just do nothing, and everything's going to be okay." But definitely, definitely consider doing nothing between imagining and then knowing what action to take. We all have our own unique set of you know movements and actions to take and there is a dance there is a little bit of, of patience what i'm doing right now i really wanted to be doing at 17 but i don't really oh 18 and then 19 and then 20 and then 21 and 22 and i'm cu- i'm starting to realize that it wasn't that i wasn't ready i mean that i couldn't do it or i was it, it was just was it's not time it's just not it just wasn't time and to really remind people that we are not mechanical beings and that just like when you tend to a garden and you imagine and you give it love, it works out a lot differently. It grows in harmony. That we can take a significant <coughs> portion of our time and our to-do list to do that, to actually love ourselves and be compassionate and be kind that the return on investment of that is quantifiable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's there you see it in the field all day long. Is that mm-hmm. correct? I do. Uh, and I agree with Philip that uh, action is a very strong part of it because as you take action, the image evolves. And as the image evolves, the action evolves. And there's this evolutionary process where you, you come constantly closer to the you you come closer to experiencing the journey that you want to experience because it's not a destination. Uh, and I also agree with you, Aurea, in that um, similar to the example when I talked about farmers, a big piece of knowing or evolving to the place of knowing what to do can also be making the decisions about what to stop doing. Because, again, we limit ourselves. Right. Right. I... This week I started posting a, I started sharing something every day, which has been my dream to do for many years. And yet for, even though I'm one of the most technical people that I know, I have all the tools and all the resources and the ability to generate content at will. Until yesterday morning, I haven't started that practice of sharing something every day. And yesterday and today, I real, I, I'm reminded what the real work is. The real work is, first of all, it's been to wait. Yeah, I'm fine with that. But the real work is right now is to see the five likes or the no clicks. And the real work will be to continue taking action without external validation, knowing that I know inside that it's time. I'm going to keep tending the garden. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to let... S- I mean, self-doubt and self-criticism is not even a thing in my life because of all of the work I put in until now. And to the naked eye, it's just, oh, I'm just posting a thing that gets five likes. But to me, I'm taking another step in an ancient cosmic journey that I won't have to know the results and I don't care about it, but I know that I'm doing it. So it's this, it's this dance and... <coughs> I just want to really encourage everyone that's on this journey to just feel feel okay about whatever they've been doing until now, really, and know that you can always 
You can always change. You can always, you can always start allowing, because allowing and doing nothing in this context, not in the let's do nothing and everything's going to be fine, but in the context of let's take more time to listen. And if you're going to pick something to do, self-love and compassion and allowing our imagination. So tap me out and tap me into you. Heal my brain and my body too. Balance my chemistry, hydrate these cells cause the body talks and meditation helps. The body talks and meditation helps. Oh, 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 oh. John, did you, okay I'll tell you about myself. I spent a while, especially when I was in my uh, Jewish Orthodox community, I spent some time idolizing America, the Western world, or whatever I saw on TV. I really idolized it. I thought that that was real. I thought that success would literally mean... I mean, I found myself in Beverly Hills 20 years later, like, trying to actually... and living that life. And it was a big heartbreak for me, and it led me back into faith and just faith of life itself and I'm just wondering about what do you what's your journey been like and what do you think of us oh boy yeah um I mean do you go home and shower like uh, (laughs) (laughs) you're just like oh my god no not at all um well I also went through a period in my late teenage years of asking a lot of questions of the culture that I was a part of as well. Um, but came through that process, not fully agreeing with everything that is a part of that culture, but still believing that there are many of that culture's values and core values, which I deeply appreciate and have a lot of respect for. And I did not see being emulated in much of the rest of the world. So, um, can we just mention one of them? For example, uh, one, of, one of the core cultures? Yeah. Well, one of the uh, cultural values that I really appreciated about the Amish communities is that the youth and the young people really have a sense of place. They have a sense of being a part of the community. They are needed. And they are they contribute. They have the opportunity to contribute to a large degree. And that really gives them a sense of place within a larger community that I feel many young people today are missing. They don't have responsibilities. They don't feel accountable. And um, that really extends into this larger um, perception, if you will. It's not really the right word, but I can't find the right word. This larger perception that um, they're not really connected to the rest of the world around them. And within the Amish community, there is a very pervading sense of connection. Same, very similar when I, I feel like there was a sense of safety, like a real sense of safety that yep. I still feel when I hang out with ultra-Orthodox folks. I feel like that there is that camaraderie and safety, and it actually works. Mm-hmm. They're not just pretending to be safe. They really are. There is that safety, which is... Uh, 
I am very passionate about community building in my life because mm-hmm. I know what we're trying to go for. It actually works. Right. It exists. There is that community value where there is um, each for the community and the community for each. Right. So you, you have one, you know, you, you're involved in both worlds, right? I mean, you really are a <coughs> Neo of your own matrix. <laughs> you are. Because you have to, you, you still draw wisdom and love and passion from your home. And yet, you don't think we're idiots, but you're teaching us a lot of things. I'm talking about the, us, the West, who have been trying to spray everything and make it right. And you're teaching us that we can't just fix the problems. You looking at us, you're looking at uh, the, 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 you know, the everyday white person who is disconnected from earth. Do you feel like there is, like how hopeful are you when it comes to us? Actually, like my kid, I have a three-year-old. I mean, two-and-a-half-year-old. Philippe has a two-year-old. Do you, do you, where do you see her and my kid growing up? What's your vision? Um, what I can say is what I've experienced over the course of the last three to five years is that there has been a tremendous, I mean, I'm hesitant to use the New Age expression, a shift in consciousness, but there really has been a tremendous shift in awareness of what is happening in the world and how our actions are impacting the Earth, the planet, the planet's ecology, and our neighbors. Um, so there is a growing awareness, and there is, and that I, I observe also extending to uh, the spiritual component as well where people are becoming more aware of themselves they're becoming more aware of the people around them and those those people's needs they're in short i would say they're becoming more empathetic they're Mm -hmm. becoming more open so that is something that i have experienced on a very experiential level from from my perspective that is not hypothetical i've seen it i've observed it and when you walk into the meetings and boardrooms or whatever it may be do you what, what, what do you find people are surprised by you, they embrace you, does it take them a while to accept you, or uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's been an interesting experience. Uh, I first started doing presentations about the technical aspects of regenerative agriculture when I was 17, and uh, particularly starting at that age, there was kind of this uh, initial gasp or shock of surprise and, and, and that, that I had to overcome. And I think the the depth and the breadth of the knowledge that I was able to share really helped me overcome that in a lot of ways. So uh, for the most part, the I tend to speak to a lot of agricultural audiences and farming audiences, and the common, the most common response is, this makes so much sense. This is what I've been looking for for 20 years, and I've never heard anybody talk about it. Hmm. And it's quite interesting because uh, one of the comments that I made earlier is that the information that we use, the technology that we use, has all been researched and documented, usually for 40 to 50 years or longer. A lot of it is, in fact, very old research, comparatively old research, but it has not been implemented. And it's been fragmented in different university departments and, uh, and in different universities all over the country and around the world. Is it a matter of, like... Trying not, is it a matter of consciousness? Is it a matter of money? Is it a matter of timing? Uh, I think it's just a matter of siloing. Okay. Um, where just in the study of plants alone, for example, 
uh, within the agricultural land grant university system that we have here in the United States. To study plants alone, we have plant pathologists, we have entomologists, we have plant physiologists, we have botanists, we have soil microbiologists, and we have agronomists. They are all working with that plant and how it interacts with its environment as a whole. And each of those different departments has its own specialties, its own area of expertise, and there's not a lot of cross-communication that is happening. So, for example, uh, in discussing plant immunity, when we talk to agronomists, which are the people out in the field making recommendations to the farmers, they have never heard about plant immunity. And so when I start talking about plant immune systems to groups of agronomists, a common response is that there is no, there's no evidence, there's no scientific evidence to support the concept of plant immunity. And yet there are entire journals published every year dedicated to plant immune systems. There are scientific books that have been published. The challenge is that all the research has been done in the botany department and it never got transferred into the field. So that's just one example. There are dozens, hundreds of examples about information and research that is out there that's very well documented, but it has never translated into something actionable. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that we have done simply is simply aggregate that information and bring it together into one unified whole and implement it. So what are we, let's, let's give some of the people some advice from the field, okay? So plants have an immune system. <coughs> humans, it's known to have an immune system too. So what's a very simple advice to humans to stay well and healthy? Eat healthy plants that have healthy immune systems. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, uh, what are the, like what? Like so um, this is actually a very important piece that, uh, and, and one of the things that I'm very, uh, excited about that regenerative agriculture can deliver. When plants have functional immune systems, they transfer that immunity to people. So how do they do that? You're familiar perhaps with the uh, one of the compounds that is discussed a lot is uh, resveratrol in red wine, uh, anthocyanins in blueberries, lycopene in tomatoes. Those are all immune compounds that plants build to protect themselves from insect attack, from disease attack, ultraviolet radiation, and so forth, that then can have immune-enhancing effects for people. The interesting part is that not all plants produce the same levels of these compounds. A blueberry is not a blueberry. There is research which indicates that the anthocyanin content of a blueberry can vary by a factor of as much as 25 times based on the nutrition and environment. That's a huge variable. So eating blueberries by itself is not enough to ensure that you will have a functional immune system. You need the best blueberries that are out there. And this is what we are helping farmers to produce. And what makes the best blueberry? Nutrition and environment, and love, and intention. Okay. I think this is the best way to end this. I wish we had more time, actually. But we have a lifetime to play together. So thank you very much, John and Philippe. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Ari.